Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This episode of the Farm Traveler Podcast is brought to you by you, the listener. Thank you so much for listening. We have had a phenomenal year with the podcast um, as we round out 2022, I wanted to let you know I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. As of this week, we have officially, this is absolutely bonkers, we have officially surpassed 200,000 downloads for the year. Absolutely crazy. Thank you so much. If you are new, if you are listening on Carbon TV, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are, thank you so much for listening. Consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts and um, Spotify. That helps us out a ton. Consider leaving a review. Consider sharing with a friend or family member. That helps us out so, so much. So thank you so much for listening. Could not do it without you. It's amazing that so many people are curious about where their food comes from. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, and I really appreciate it. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams, and this is the next to last episode of 2022, and it has been an amazing year here on the Farm Traveler Podcast, and I'm so thankful for you. Thank you so much for listening, um, and I've been trying to put out some really good episodes the last couple of weeks, obviously, and it's been a little trying because I've actually had strep throat for about a week and a half. And so, you know, when you're a podcaster, that kind of puts you at like a work stoppage. But luckily, everybody's been super nice working with me, trying to reschedule next week's interview. I've had to reschedule about five or six times, and it's a repeat guest. So luckily, we already have that rapport, and it's going to come out next week, and it's going to be an amazing episode to conclude 2022. But for today's episode... Again, I feel like I've said this the past couple of episodes a lot, which is, you know, it's always a good problem to have, but this is an awesome episode. I've been trying to make a habit where the past 25 or 30 episodes, I've been like writing down in my journal 
um, detailed talking points for the episode. And this episode is one of the more detailed notes, but one of the more detailed pages that I have. It's awesome. We talk a lot about livestock, um, pasture poultry, what that is, and all that good stuff. So on today's episode, I am interviewing an awesome farmer from California named Tyler Dolly, and he is from Big Bluff Ranch. And Tyler reached out to me and was like, hey, I'd love to come on your show, talk about our farm, talk about what we do, our whole holistic management process, and what that is, and how we're trying to serve some awesome customers in California. And so Tyler and I have an awesome conversation talking about what exactly pasture poultry is, what holistic management is, how he and his family are trying to serve about a thousand customers a year, and how he thinks that is kind of their, kind of how much they can serve. And also, we talk about this in the episode, how he plans to kind of push them to the next, the next farmer that can supply the next thousand um, consumers that might come their way. So it's awesome. We talk about diets, how it's, you know, the popularity of organ meat is coming around. You know, it's something that we did hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it's slowly becoming more common. And then the process of digital marketing and how Tyler's trying to build a huge digital um, footprint to make his product stand out against huge brands like ButcherBox and stuff like that. And also kind of his whole process, how they wound up raising a whole bunch of different livestock and how they settled on chicken. So this is an awesome, awesome, awesome interview. Check out Big Bluff Ranch and Tyler at the links below. I really think you'll enjoy it. I learned a lot about it. Um, I also put together the whole interview over on YouTube on you know a video format is there if you'd like to watch it. And of course, if you follow us on Instagram or Facebook, I've been putting up little clips and reels of the interview. So go check those out if you like. Of course, all those links are in the description below. Really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Tyler. I had a blast interviewing him as you know, our second to last episode for 2022. So um, enough with this intro, on with the episode, enjoy it. Had a blast with Tyler, think you will too. I always tell everybody the magic of the podcast is in the edit, so. Right. No pressure at all. <clears throat> right, no I do, yeah, I am, yeah, go ahead, hit record whenever you want. So, well yeah, I guess we could just cover in the podcast, but basically, we were contract growers for a long time, so we were growing for other wholesalers. They were they were marketing pasture raised chicken, but yeah. it didn't have our label on it, and that's mm -hmm. how we got our start. And we through COVID, it's kind of been a lingering death for us. Our wholesale counts died because of COVID, and okay. for the last year or so, we've been trying to bring ourselves back to life, and working through the direct-to-consumer idea, you know, shipping from us to you, connecting straight to the consumer. And I'm trying to figure out how best to do that. And we actually live about 45 minutes away from town, and that's okay. where the kids' school are. So mm -hmm. I'm driving oftentimes two hours, two and a half hours a day, picking kids up and dropping them off at school. And... I've just, I've become a podcast junkie. I really enjoy listening to them. I'm getting all sorts of information from them. And I said, heck, I should just get on some podcasts. Let's use podcast guesting as a way of marketing. So um, that's what I've been doing. Just, you know, reaching out to podcasts that seem to either have an audience that I'd like to speak to or that I 
well, yeah, I like to talk to anyone, but or also provide value as a consumer or provide value as another producer going down this wacky path. And um, that's how I came across you. And I'm kind of going from there. Yeah, I mean, that, that's smart. I mean, I feel like you got to figure out, you know, what works best for you and what works best for your company. And so, I mean, like, what other podcasts have you been on so far to kind of get your message out there? So far, I have been on uh, two, call them fitness podcasts. Okay. Um, I've been I've been on uh, my digital farmer, which is a pretty fun one. Have you come across her and your stuff? Her name's Karina Bench. She's, no, uh, she's a CSA farmer out of okay. Ohio ish, I believe. Okay. And she's really cool because she's doing a lot of this uh, marketing style that I'm sort of trying to get into. And I listen to her all the time. I was interviewed by her. She would actually probably be a great interview for you. And what was the name um, of hers? Digital Farmer? My Digital Farmer. My Digital Farmer. Okay. Yep. Um, and who else have I been on? Uh, some, you know, then, yeah, then, then some like food ones. You know, I, I've been on about, 10 ish so far so it's kind of like all over the place i really haven't found a vein that just yeah resonates but i have a lot of fun on them i feel like i'm delivering a lot of value and entertainment and just keep doing it because it's fun so yeah, unfortunately i'm getting so i'm so excited about it i'm like well i might need to start my own podcast now and i'm like <laughs> no 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 there's only so many hours in the day don't don't think that you're gonna overcommit yourself but it would be fun to to be able to reach out and interview people and because what I what it would be something sort of like what you're doing, but not quite like some sort mm -hmm. of idea of, um, you know, a farmer interviewing a farmer, a farmer asking questions only another farmer would know to ask to yeah. to bring out the because you probably know this. You're professional at this. Farmers are pretty much born storytellers, right? Oh, 100%, even the most shy yeah. farmer is going to like blow up with like this crazy story. So if I go down that path, the idea would be like, okay, I know enough about farming in general that whatever crop or animal you're into, I'm going to be able to ask you an interesting question. And then I want, to, I would morph that conversation such that the audience, probably an urban person would understand kind of the passion that goes into food production yeah no that's smart i mean honestly that's kind of the the perspective i had whenever i started this show because i mean i don't come from like an ag background i was an ag teacher for two years but i mean that's pretty much it and i was like you know what i just wanted to make this podcast for consumers so that they can learn but then after i started doing it for a while i realized that actually there were a lot of farmers listening in because they wanted to figure out like what's going on in other industries what's going on what like a, a dairy farmer wanted to figure out, you know, what's a crop grower doing in California when I'm in um, Wisconsin or something like that. And so they just wanted to figure out, you know, get the pulse on the other side of the industry. What are they doing? What are some tips and tricks they could learn from other people growing or raising the same thing? I mean, it's so fun. Like everybody's got some tips and tricks out there that they could share, which I'm sure even if you, you're already busy, like you said, but if you wanted to start your own podcast, I'm sure that you could gain some knowledge and share that with a bunch of people. Yeah. And I think it would be fun because, you know, I'm doing the email marketing. I'm writing stuff. I'm writing copy. And 
you know, I don't find it hard to write. It takes time, but I get on a podcast and I'm like, oh, this is good. I really enjoy <laughs> talking. This is, yeah. this is fun. <laughs> I so. saw, um, I've been trying to do TikToks and Instagram reels and there was a TikTok mm-hmm. a few weeks ago and it was something like people were splicing it together and it was this guy and he said, for everybody that your teacher told you in high school that you talk too much, what are you doing now? And I spliced it and I was like, I have a podcast where I talk for people for a living. And I was like, kind of <laughs> cool. You know, there's so many people out there, out there doing that. Like, you know, told they talk too much, told that they are really good at conversations. Well, hey, guess what? Do a podcast. It's great. Right. Great way to meet people. Great way to share information out there. I mean, it's great. It's cool. Big fan. Big fan, yep. obviously. <laughs> yep. I mean, uh, if I go down this path, I would, I would like to circle back and, you know, pick your brain and figure out how, you know, post-production and guests and tracking down and all that sort of fun stuff. But this is your podcast for me, not my interview of you. So <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, that's always fun. Like I, I really have fun with the guests that, you know, ask me questions after I ask them questions. I mean, yeah, happy to answer any questions about podcasting. I mean, I, I will say this, like when I looked into it, I thought it was going to be a lot higher barrier for entry but it's not. I mean, it's a, you can have a great podcast with um, just your cell phone. I mean, one of the, you ever heard of the the podcast Serial? Like it's like a crime drama podcast. Oh, yeah. My wife loves to listen to it. And honestly, every time I listen to it, I cringe at the, the audio quality because it's not ideal, but it's still super popular. And so podcasters mm. stress about the audio quality. But then nine times out of 10, the listener doesn't care. Like they just want to listen to good quality content. And I mean, I've been telling that to anybody that, you know, is starting a podcast, like have good quality audio, but it's not the most important thing. The most important things would be your storytelling and interview strategies. I mean, everybody does it different, obviously. And so just kind of got to figure out what works for you. So yeah, I mean, podcasts are fun. I mean, maybe if you did one, maybe you could do one on, I don't know, pasture aged chickens or just, you know, starting out farmers or something like that. That'd be kind of cool. Right. Right. I was, um, I mean, feel free to rein me back in, but I was <laughs> thinking of, of, um, yeah. So there would be that farmer interviewing a farmer idea. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the conventional wisdom, which I believe is true is that your email list, the niches are in your list that yes. you talk, you know, bring people onto a list and you nurture a relationship with them and really let them connect with you which I believe in that all of this direct direct to consumer stuff I'm doing on a high level, what I'm conceptually doing is trying to take the farmer market experience and put it online. Mm. So if you look at other direct to consumer um, meat companies, um, butcher box all the way down, those are all great quality products, great companies, but they're essentially a catalog. There's not a person there and you get on their newsletters and it's good information, but there's not a person there. There's like a brand personality or a brand voice. So what I'm trying to do is put my voice, our voice really forefront. And so I had this thought of instead of having a weekly newsletter, it would still be a weekly newsletter, but record a 10 to 15 minute little podcast like this stick it in the email newsletter, you know, you have some text in there, give them a sense. Then also like, Hey, you're probably busy. You're going to go drop the kids off at school, hit play on this. Uh, I'll tell you what's happened for 15 minutes on the, on the ranch, what we think about it and why it's meaningful and impactful to you. And yeah. that's, so I don't know. It was just another idea I had. 
No, that's that's such a good idea. I mean, because if uh, those bigger companies like a butcher box, you're not getting that personal interaction with them. And then also for people that might buy your meat, um, they're getting updates on literally what you're doing to raise their products. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that's like a very like a one on one. They know the farmer. They know exactly how you're raising it. And I feel like that's something a lot of people want. I mean, I interviewed a farmer earlier this week. And she was saying they have like a really big UPIC operation in Texas. Her name is Megan. And she says that whenever people come out there, they love interacting with the farmer and just making that connection. And I thought that they would want to support, you know, organic or traditional, whatever sort of practices. But the most important thing was connecting with somebody and realizing like, hey, I want to support a farmer that I know that's in my local community that's doing things that I can literally see and learn from them. So that's huge. I feel like if people signed up for your newsletter, obviously they'd see how you're growing the chickens, growing your products, and then they would directly go and buy that. I mean, I mean, we say it in the marketing world, like that's your perfect little funnel to get them mm -hmm. and then get them to buy the products. Yep. Yep. No. So that's kind of the thought and that the knowing the farmer aspect of it, that that is one of the biggest selling points for podcasts is that the there is so much personality that comes through tone and inflection mm -hmm. and pauses and personality comes through that it's much easier to be yourself when you're yourself rather than trying to put yourself into words. That's an entirely different skill set. <laughs> and if all I have to do is talk, I mean, so our ranch, we're relatively large in the pasture poultry world. Yeah. But we're we're micro. We're, you know, in the reality. We're going to max out at about a thousand families per year, we could probably service about a thousand families. Really, I'll leave I'll leave that soapbox for later in the interview. But <laughs> the 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 thing is, is that if we only need a thousand people, that that means we're turning away ninety nine point nine 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 percent of even our immediate population. And so, and this is an internal thing. I'm really trying to be comfortable with is that we are not for everyone. Mm. And how do I present myself as truthfully myself and people are going to resonate with that. And those are the people we want to work with and the people who don't resonate. Hey, that's fantastic. There are other people who do what I do. There are grocery stores, you know, just my people. I want to connect my tribe. And I think that by being myself, ourself, I say me a lot, but there's my parents are over in the other room. You know, we've got two guys out in the field. It's a collective out here, but we are ourselves and we are for some and we're not for many. So how can we help people sort this out? It's almost a, it's almost a benefit. Like, Hey, listen to me. You think I'm crazy? I, I certainly am. But if I'm your kind of crazy, hang out some more. If I'm too crazy, <laughs> we'll talk later. Yeah, there you go. I, I feel like a lot of people, especially online, if they're trying to build a, a business or a brand, like they want to please everyone. The thought is, if I please to everyone, I will have a huge audience. But then, I mean, you're doing that, you're just kind of vague and you're not really attracting those, you know, those hardcore followers. So that's good that, you know, you want to find the people that support you, that like you, that like your personality, what you're doing. But everybody else is like, it's okay if you don't like me. If you don't like our products, that's fine. Here's where you can go. But if you like us, stay around. Here's where you're going to get. I think that's huge. I mean, you hear that quote a lot, like the riches are in the niches. Like find your niche mm -hmm. for your personality, for your products, and then boom. 
right? Well, and also there's the, I mean, it's a little different on a, on a business side of things, but there's the thousand true fans theory yeah, where you can make a real living with, you just have a thousand true fans. It came from an article by a guy, Kevin Kelly, Tim okay. Ferriss talks about it a fair amount on his, his podcast. So I that's love, also uh, it, him. He's really good. Yeah, like, well, yeah, he's like what the biggest, second biggest, third biggest podcaster ever. Yeah, he's pretty oh, good. Oh, he's the goat. Yeah. Um. So not that we picked a thousand people to service because of that article, but that the concept holds true that we only need a small amount of people, and really, we want to get our people, we want to get our community going, and then we want to provide we need more people growing. We need more small scale producers, right? So mm-hmm. if we can correct our thousand people and really prove as an example that, Hey, it can be done. And then we want, you know, if some competitor comes along and says, oh, big bluff ranch, those guys are nuts. Don't, don't buy from them. Buy from me because we are this different, but we, you know, in general, there's still going to be a small family farm, local taking care of their local environment. And we're going to, we will have broadened our agricultural base in our, in our community. So, uh, yeah, we just want to do the best we can serve our customers as best we can. And if we happen to bring more people into the fold, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a challenge and also an opportunity. I mean, like you were saying earlier, you can get your thousand families per year, but then you also have an opportunity for the industry to like, Hey, if we can't support you, go here. Here's where you can go. Like, I mean, also, how big of a struggle is that? Like, I'm sure, I mean, like you were saying, we need more people in the pasture-raised chicken industry, even just more farmers in general. So, like, how much of a challenge is that also? Like, sorry, we can't take you on, but here's where you can go. Well, yeah, I mean, that's their, their it, well, A, finding the thousand people is, is not easy. I'm not, like, pretending like I've accomplished this feat yet, but that's what we're trying to do. And then if they don't stick to us, there is not a huge referral network out there. It's not like, you know, your plumber where there's throw a, throw a uh, plunger out there and you hit a plumber, <laughs> um, right? They're, they're, they're few and far between, especially people even adjacent to our style of production. So yeah, it, it is tough. You know, we... Well, then that leads into the, at least in the meat world, that leads into a big discussion about the unspoken elephant in the room, which is processing. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have the capability of growing high quality, taking care of the land, taking care of the animals and producing high quality meat. And then dot, 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 how do they get it to you? Well, they have to be, well, let's call it 90% have to be USDA inspected. And that the USDA slaughterhouses that operate on a small scale are extremely few and far between. We, we are lucky that we have a relationship with the one of two small scale pasture poultry processors in California. That's it. Mm. The entire state of California, well, three, but there's two. There's two processors in all of California. So if you buy from a small farm a chicken, a small farm chicken in California, it came from one of two places. And really it came from one place and that's it. California has a population of 
how many million? I should probably know this. I live here, but it's many, many <laughs> million. And there's only effectively one processing plant in California. That's right? wild. And, and I mean, I, I feel like COVID a couple of years ago really showcased the issues of that bottleneck we have with so many, you know, so many sm- so, like a very small amount of large scale processors and then a very tiny amount of smaller scale processors for, for farms like you guys. I mean, that's a huge issue. It is. It is. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a huge issue. And so for all of the talk, which I support about getting local animal producers up and going small farms, that's fantastic. But the people pushing that may not be in the industry enough to realize that we can, we can, we already are, have the capability of producing way more than we can actually process. I guarantee. So 45 minutes into town for us, we're going to drive past. Oh, I can't even count 30, 40 ranches. Yeah. And red bluff. So California, we're in the Sacramento Valley, a couple hours North of Sacramento that if you are outside of the Bay area or you are outside of LA, California is relatively rural. Like we are a large agricultural state. There is a lot of animals. There's a lot of farming. And in our neck of the woods, it's, it's cattle ranching. There's a lot of cattle ranches up here. So I know that if there was easier access to processing, because you talk to ranchers all the time, they're like, oh, I can't believe how much this grass fed beef guy gets per pound, but I don't believe in grass fed beef. Well, I'm not talking about that. He's like, I, I can't even get them processed. Right. So if there were more processing plants and so the next level sophisticated person is like, okay, we assume that the producers will come if we build the processing plant, let's build the processing plant, Mm. which is great there. The USDA farm bill put $20 billion into niche meat processing plants. It was, it sounds like a huge amount of money, but I was listening to a podcast and there was a guy who went through and analyzed it. And he's like, well, here's the reality of meat processing, that meat processors only work with consistent throughput. They can't have, because it's labor. Meat yeah. processing is a very labor intensive program. And that you have a huge spike, at least in our world, you have a huge spike in the spring. That's your good grass. And then it tails off. So if you want to start up a beef processing plant, great you staff for the spring and then what do you do with the labor for the rest of the year or you you staff for winter which would be our hardest time to finish and then what do you do with the spring you have to turn away you know 80 percent of your business yeah so there are economic realities in the processing world why these small mom and pop shops have disappeared and that it's just an economic reality that maybe if you go up into the high level USDA farm bill and change some of the subsidies that maybe over a long span of time, economic trickle down stuff would happen. And we'd encourage these small processing plants to come back. But reality is I don't, I'm not an expert. I don't know, but it (laughs) seems less likely. So if you look at the, well, like white Oak pastures, I noticed you had an interview with them. The way they got around this is they had to build their own million dollar, multi-million dollar processing plant. That Mm -hmm. was how they controlled their processor because it's a huge choke point. 
we have one processor. They like me. I like them. I hope. Hey, Alyssa. I'm saying good things about you. (laughs) Um, But if for whatever reason they decide not to process my birds, boom, I'm out of business. I have no, no backup. And this has happened. Many people have been forced out of business through processing debacles because it's a huge bottleneck. Now, why might um, they turn you away? Why might they not allow you to process your chickens or whatever your livestock? You oh, have? I don't know. I mean, for me personally, I'm not too worried about it. But uh, scale, if mm. you're too small, these because even though this is a small scale plant, they're still processing, I don't know, up to about 50,000 birds a week. So if you okay. come with 10, they're, you won't even get in the door. They're going to have a minimum number. You're probably going to have to bring 500. I don't know something like that. So that would be one reason why you couldn't get into a processing plant. You might not get into a processing plant because you only bring those 500 chickens once a year that Mm -hmm. they have slots they have to fill. Like, well, that's great. You're here once. What about the other 11 months out of the year? Um, They might get too busy. We, for a while, one of our contracts was so large that we were using up all the capacity or a lot of the excess capacity at our processor. And these smaller people who were bringing 500 head in couldn't get in because we brought too many birds for them. So they're, and the processor can't grow because it's California, it's regulation heavy. So they couldn't expand even if they wanted to, you know, regulations nimby not in buying backyard so um yeah processing is a huge huge bottleneck so i know so we have a beef processor not too far away from us and they are one of probably three or four maybe five beef processors in california Mm. and i know people who are trucking beef up from santa barbara to get processed at them which is a nine hour one-way trip Jeez. Okay. Because that they don't want to, no one wants to, but yeah. that's, that's the only place you can get in. So you got to do, you got to do what you got to do. So, and that's fine for the animals. If you're worried about it, they can travel just fine. I mean, it's longer than would be ideal, but they're fine. That's not in any way stressful to animals. Um, I mean, you can sit in a car ride for nine hours, right? It's the same deal. It's You'd prefer not to drive for nine hours, but eh, you can do it. Um, so anyways, yeah, processing is a, is a, uh, is a gorilla in the room, uh, elephant in the room that no one talks about that. Yeah. You (laughs) want to grow small scale marketing or meat companies. Fantastic idea. Where are you going to process them? Yeah. It's, it's a big issue. And I mean, one thing that I, I think might help relieve this a little bit, and it's something that I miss I mean, I, I've never really, I didn't grow up in this era, but I miss having like a corner store butcher shop, you know, where you could go get some quality meat. You could figure out where it's from. I mean, maybe down the road we could figure out, I don't know, bring that back. And this is where you could have more small scale processors at or something like that. Um, even I interviewed a, a guy a couple of years ago. He's called the Roving Butcher and he travels around the country and he butchers like small scale farms like goats, sheep, cows, chickens, stuff like that. But I mean, that's, you know, a very, very small niche thing too as well. But it's definitely an elephant in the room. And I mean, kind of like we saw with the pandemic, I mean, if there is a small hiccup in the food supply chain, 
because of the processing issue, there's going to be a huge decrease in the available meat that we have. And hopefully we can kind of get back on track before the next pandemic, you know, knock on wood, hopefully there's not one, but you never know. Well, it seems like we get them every hundred years. So we're, uh, (laughs) we're good for a little bit. We got, we got 98 years to prepare for the next one, hopefully. Right. So we'll see. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about Big Bluff Ranch. So what's the background there? What exactly is pasture raised chicken? How is it different from, you know, commercial chicken and all that good stuff? Right. So Big Bluff Ranch started in 1960. Grandpa bought the ranch and Mm -hmm. we are called Big Bluff Ranch, not because we have big hillsides, although we do. The real reason we are called Big Bluff Ranch is Graham told Grandpa, you did not buy a ranch. That's just a big bluff. (laughs) And so they were in the Bay Area at the time and he brought her up here and I was like, here you go. The big bluff. Big Bluff Ranch. <laughs> it stuck. So so that yeah, it stuck. That was that was that was our name. So we you know, grandpa's been here. My grandpa bought it in nineteen sixty. It was a weekend ranch um for a while. My parents moved up here permanently in uh seventy six. In nineteen eighties, uh farming became a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh there was a huge interest <laughs> spike and all bad stuff happened. I was very, very, very short. I have no idea. It's all history to me, (laughs) but it did push my dad into looking for the most profitable way to run the ranch, um, which led to him going to a talk by a guy named Alan Savory in a little town called Willows, which is even smaller than Red Bluff. And that was our start of holistic resource management, which is now called holistic management Alan Savory is a worldwide sensation. He has a TED Talk that has multiple millions of views. And it's a it's a very over oversimplification of his philosophy. Very he has so much great stuff in there, but ultimately at the kernel his his idea is that we should be managing animals like mother nature would. How does mother nature manage animals? She bunches them up with predators. They eat all the grass, and when the grass is gone, they move. And then they're not going to come back to the grass until it grows back up. So that is the very basic essence of holistic management. And that's what my dad started doing in the 80s. And he was able to all well, a little bit over double our carrying capacity. So one way of looking at that is that he basically doubled the size of the ranch. We were able to Mm. run twice as number of cows on the same number of acres, Um, which led So that was range management. Then kind of the follow on concept is like, well, we're taking care of our grass, but we're still having to supplement our cows that they're not fitting our landscape. We are not a we're having to put inputs into the system. Why? Nature doesn't need these extra inputs. And we realized that our cattle genetics were wrong. They were tall, skinny cows, which are really oh. good. This is another another gross simplification. But tall, skinny scow, tall, skinny cows are really good for feedlots. They are hard to fatten, which means you can feed them a lot of corn before they get up to weight. And you can. And what we ended up needed for our grass finished operation was a short wide cow for our range operation, uh, which 
uh, we didn't at the time realize, but that is actually in the general terms, a very good genetics for grass fed beef. So I graduated college in 2000, say I graduated on a Friday. Let's say I was at a farmer market on a Sunday with our grass fed beef because it's a story. We won't accept reality that it was about a month later. But anyways, I graduate college. I'm at farmer markets with our grass fed beef in the early 2000s. And when you're at a farmer market, you're like, well, they want this. They want that. And so we tried some lamb. We tried some goat. Um, they fit our environment really well. It still do, but people don't buy as much as they say they're going to with goat and yeah. lamb, no matter how delicious it is. So that didn't work. And then we got into, well, we were like, well, okay, most consumed protein is chicken. So we got like 30 meat birds, got the Joel Salatin book, and it was fine. The animals did absolutely great. We did not enjoy the experience. <laughs> it was a lot <laughs> really? of chicken poop. <laughs> we were um, not moving them enough. Uh, we ended up hand processing them. So that means we brought them into the kitchen and dunked them in a pot of boiling water and plucked off feathers. And there's really something about the smell of steam and chicken feathers and chicken manure in your Ooh. kitchen yeah. that tends to not really make your mother very happy about doing more chickens kind of ruins. So we came up with the rule. Yeah. (laughs) We were, the new rule was four legs only. And the only four legged animal left was pig. So he went into pasture pork and we quickly realized that we liked pigs less than we liked poultry. It's not quite true, but we had a lot harder time managing them that at the time we had a pretty high level of, wild pigs around Mm. and keeping a domestic sow away from a wild boar was an exercise in futility. So we had no controlled breeding. We had sows farrowing out everywhere and that the genetics were, they kind of come out looking funny. They look like a uh, brown watermelon. They have these, Okay, you've probably seen them online. So anyways, they look like brown watermelons and they're jumpy and hard to manage. And so we're like, we got out of them. We're like, ah, okay, not, not pork, not a good plan. (laughs) So then we got into, um, well, we got out of that and we kind of are essentially looking around the marketplace and we're like, okay, well, at this point, this is probably eight, nine years after grass-fed beef kind of started Hmm. in 2000 and there were a lot of other people with grass-fed beef at this point they were not valuing their time i would think appropriately Hmm. and they were undercutting us so it was hard for us to sell our 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 beef for the price it needed Mm -hmm. like oh what else no one else is dumb enough no one else has been dumb enough to do chicken well we did chicken once we can do it better the next time i guess we have to so that's how we got into chicken uh, we got up to about 1800 a year processing under USDA exemption, which is an interesting little side note to our story about processing, is that in the USDA code, if you process less than 20,000 birds per year, you go under, under state inspection, and mm. each state has their own levels of inspection. Many states allow you to process on-farm according to, you know, hygienic safe practices, but you can avoid USDA inspection, which is a cool way. That's exactly how we actually got our start in pasture poultry is we processed ourselves 
and we got up to scale and we had to go USDA inspected because, um, well, a whole bunch of reasons. But the biggest reason was that uh, uh, friends and family would no longer answer our phone calls. We're like, hey, time to process chickens. Click. (laughs) Dial tone. Ghost. Nope. Busy. Nope. Next time. So we could, you know, we were running into a labor issue. And luckily for me, I went to a conference and I met a guy who said he could sell more than he could raise. We could raise more than we could sell. And that was uh, where we made the shift from direct marketing to contract growing. So we would raise these birds still to our pasture raised uh, standards and he would put his label on them and sell them. And it was a great relationship. We, we focused on what we're really, really good at, which is growing lots of awesome chicken on pasture. And he did what he was really good at, which was dealing with a whole bunch of flaky chefs in the Bay area. <laughs> um, so that's, that is the, uh, the shorter, the shorter, the long version of the shorter story of who we are. And so what pasture raised chicken is, is pretty much what it sounds like. That means chicken out on pasture, access to fresh rested pasture that has bugs, has grass, has dirt, has grit, has sun, has wind, has heat, has cold, has, has, you know, it's outside. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's kind of, it's a term that is intuitive. You if you think pasture raised, you pretty much can picture in your head what it looks like. There are variations on technique, but they all involve being on pasture and moving on pasture. Um, so our particular style is something you would probably call a day range system. So we set up a, a bunch of shelters for them in one mm-hmm. spot for their lifespan. And then we pick it all up, the infrastructure, and we move it to the next fresh spot of pasture. It's based on... Uh, for French production style, they have some some of the world's best chicken, and they have a La Belle Rouge, and Ooh. that is what we based our production system on. If it's a good enough for the French, it's good enough for us. Maybe <laughs> I like um, that. Okay, yeah, and um, so people will confuse us with free range chicken. Free so pasture raised is not a regulated term. There's no. USDA or FSIS claim by standards behind that. Anyone can say it. Free range is a regulated term. You have to meet a specific set of ter- of in, um, criteria. I don't have them all memorized, but it's it has to do with time access to outdoor based on age, how much doors they have access to go outside with, how much area is outside, various things like this. But if you heard what I said, talking about doors and access and how much room that these birds, free range birds are actually read and raised in a conventional barn and they have little doors that open up on the side and they run out into these little garden lawn areas. It's not what you expect when you hear free range, free range you expect is equal to pasture raised very likely. But the reality is, is free range is a term that has now become regulated, was helped written by the industry. And because it is a regulated term, there are loopholes. No, I wouldn't call them loopholes, but you can game the system. You're like, okay, this is the standard. I can do everything normal, but if I do this one little thing, I can now call it free range. So free range chicken, when you're buying it at a grocery store, is not a chicken running around on grass like you would expect the name to imply 
only pasture raised is that way. And there are, well, I think there's now one chicken operation who goes to grocery stores, Paul down at pasture bird. They, I think they just started doing that in the past month or so. So there is one national brand of pasture raised chicken. Anything else you see free range means it's living in a barn. Yeah, that was something that so, I thought was crazy to learn about a few years ago. Um, I was in college in animal science class, and our professor was like, yeah, you know, to be free range, they just have to have access to a door. Like, they don't have to be outside. They just have to have access. I was like, that's kind of a weird way to market that. Like, oh, this is some free range chicken, but it's not really free range chicken at all. Instead, what you imagine is free range is definitely going to be pasture raised chicken, which I, I feel like, I don't know which is it's weird i feel like we need to change that marketing term and just kind of change all those loopholes and i don't know that's weird i mean so uh, the thing is you set up a standard you set up criteria and once that is set up someone's going to figure out how to do the bare minimum Mm -hmm. right so it's and it's happening now in the pasture raised world it's not it's not happened but you can see trends emerging where someone's going to say this is pasture raised and you're like no no it's kind of going to go the way of free range so yeah ultimately if you're in a grocery store you want as many audits as possible so a free range chicken in the grocery store is better than a non-free range chicken in the grocery store even though it's not Mm -hmm. what you think it is it's a step better I imagine in another 15 or 20 years, you're going to see pasture raised chicken in the grocery store, which will be better than free range, but it's still not going to be good as true free range. Mm -hmm. So if you really, really care about your chicken, this gets back to kind of my direct to consumer stuff. You need to know your farmer and you need to have that farmer be transparent. And you can make your own choices. Like you could have a relationship with a a free range chicken farmer. And as long as you're comfortable with what he's saying and how he's saying it, that's great. He doesn't need verification. You can make a pretty awesome chicken with a free range production system, but it's not pasture raised. And so ultimately the true verification is knowing your farmer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't really work on on a society scale. So you do need some sort of third party audits when you go into a grocery store, but you just have to know that people are doing just the bare minimum to get that certification. It's not like, I don't think many free range chicken farmers are like, I believe in free range because it is my philosophical base. They're like, Oh, I can do this, that, and the other thing. And I get an extra, you know, 10 cents a pound done. Yeah. Which is not to say that farmers don't care about their animals. Um, I hear this often. It's like, oh, those conventional guys, they just shove their chickens into a barn and they don't care. It's absolutely not true. There is no farmer, no rancher who does not care about their land, does not care about their animals, doing their absolute best for them that they know how. Sometimes they just don't know. And that when you can present, and they're also trapped by the economic system that we're in. The conventional barn guys who are growing for Purdue, I mean, there's some really, really depressing statistics out there about how these farmers are treated. I wouldn't get the details right, so I'm not going to go into them, but they're literally making pennies a pound. They're growing 
30, 40, 50, 60,000 birds or more at a time, and they're making pennies a pound. So, you know, just imagine they have all of these animals are doing their absolute best they can for them. They're making so little money that the wife still has to work in town so they can have health benefits. It's just not right. The reason, well, this is a whole nother soapbox. The reason (laughs) your chicken and the grocery store is so cheap is that there are so much subsidies built in. Uh, It was one subsidy I just mentioned that the ultimate farmers are not getting paid very much. They're not, they're barely making a, a living wage, barely. And then there's other practices that would, I wish I knew better so I could talk about them, but there's not, they have a, everyone harvests at the same time. So there is a tournament, they call it a tournament style. So if you are below average, you actually get paid less money. Mm. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's just no fun. Then another subsidy why your grocery store chicken is so cheap is that they eat mostly corn and soy. And if you look at the farm bill, that the crop subsidies mostly are corn and soy. So those commodities are artificially cheap because we are taking our tax dollars and then turning around and giving it to farmers to grow it. Um, so, it, and then, then there are other externalities that are not in the price that the farming practices in the Midwest encouraged by the farm bill as it is now that there is this huge dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico where all the pesticides and herbicides wash down the Mississippi. And there's just a gigantic dead zone where the, what was it? Shrimp there. I think they're really famous for shrimp right around the, the new Orleans. Yeah. Shrimp can't grow there anymore. Like it's dead, literally dead. And so when you buy cheap chicken, you without knowing it are supporting all these practices and that this is something I also like to talk about that the awareness of what you eat, how you eat is very impactful to our environment that you get to choose our future three times a day. Every time you buy something, you're like, Oh, I just live in the city. I don't, I don't do anything with the ground. I don't do, it's absolutely not true. One way of saying it is you're farming with your dollars that every time you put a dollar down, I mean, eventually at least a penny of it will make it back to a farmer. And that farmer is, I guarantee, dying, working his butt off or her butt off to keep that land bountiful and healthy and to make a living for themselves and to create a legacy for their kids. And they want to do things as best as possible. And if they get a market single signal that, hey, I can make more money if I go organic. Boom, they're that way. Organics have been growing 20 to 30% year over year for, I don't know, two decades. It's, um, and like I said, there's that's a third party audit. People can game it, they can just do the bare minimum. But would you rather have bad organic or conventional? A bad organic, if you're, you know, let's, let's blame China. China's a good bogeyman. <laughs> if we're buying in organic stuff from China, well, is it a hundred percent organic? Eh, maybe not, but is, uh, is they even their bad organic is probably better than their conventional, right? So I'm kind of talking about directional change. Hey, if you're a person at home, you're a consumer and you're like, I, I don't have an impact. That's not true. You absolutely do. You're you're voting with it every time you buy. 
And so, and this is to some degree, some part of why I enjoy doing these podcasts is like, just take one step, $1, literally $1 is meaningful to me as a small scale chicken producer, right? That your dollars keep me in business, right? You are voting for me because I'm not just raising chicken. We absolutely are, but we are also taking care of 4,000 acres of water catchment. Water catchment, meaning that if we capture more rainfall, we're going to be less flooding in the winter. Mm -hmm. More water catchment means that we soak in more water. So we have more water trickling down into the Sacramento River for the salmon runs in the summer, right? We are, your dollars are keeping us, your dollars spent on our chicken are keeping us in the business of stewarding this landscape that in turn is not only giving you awesome, amazing chicken to eat, but it is also saving the environment that we all live in. This is a collective, collective thing. People, we're all in the same spaceship and that, um, yeah, like I said, I need a thousand families to keep us, you know, going it doesn't take for how many fam a thousand families. There's four million people in the Bay Area. I mean, that's a lot of thousands. <laughs> that so if you think of me, you keep a thousand of those people in the Bay Area keep me going. We're taking care of four thousand acres. Mm-hmm. Well, that next farmer down the road's like, hey, Big Bluff Ranch, you're doing pretty awesome. We're like, yeah, hey, this is pretty cool. Like, hey, I can do that. You're dumb. I'm like, yes, I am. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it better. Like, go for it, man. Have fun. They get a thousand families. Now, all of a sudden, we have 8,000 acres that's being taken care of to these standards, right? And so, I don't know. I'm throwing all of my metaphors together here. (laughs) But I really like the idea that the way you eat not only affects you, you're going to get better tasting food, probably healthier food for you. It's going to affect the animals because good food only comes from good animals more or less. And that good animals really have to be grown on good ground and good ground is going to take care of our environment. It's this just an amazingly synergistic positive feedback loop where you just kind of pick one thing and you keep asking the question, why, 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 why? And eventually you get to this point where you're like, yeah, I see how this whole thing fits together. It's synergistic and it just makes everything better. You can understand why we got to the point where we are now, but we can't keep going the way we're on now. Like we've mined all the fertility that mother nature put in the ground for tens of thousands of years. We blew that out in a hundred years. Like (laughs) we got to, we got to change here people. (laughs) And that there are some really super powerful, super exciting, super energizing people out there proving that regenerative farming can restore the degradation that we've done in decades, not centuries. There's a guy named Gabe Brown, super exciting, wrote a book called Soil to Dirt, I believe. Dirt to Soil. Mm -hmm. Um, That'll, my my dad has listened to it like four times. He's actually (laughs) out there uh, playing rangeland compost right now. Okay, there you go. Which is part of our practices to taking care of our collective environment to grow more range grass, to soak in more soil, to feed more cows, to make more grass-fed beef, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and he's been listening to the Gabe Brown book, and he's like hopping off the tractor like, oh, oh my goodness, we got to get those microsiles all fungi happy. Like, we got to do this. We got to focus just, on this. is it, such a good idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Uh, I don't know. I went off on a whole tangent of soapbox ideas there, man. 
pull me back to reality. What, 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 what's the next question? No, no, that's perfect. I mean, that's such a good perspective too, that every time a consumer gets food, whether that's at a grocery store or a restaurant, like you are literally voting with your dollar. And I mean, like the issues right now, like you were saying earlier, chicken farmers getting a penny per pound. That's really a result of just kind of the economic system that we've created. We expect chicken, other products to be super cheap, but we've also got to realize it's going to be a little bit more expensive if we want to have more regenerative chicken, livestock, produce, stuff like that, because that's just kind of the way it is. And I mean, I think that, I don't know, once we realize that, everybody, I think it'll be a whole lot better. Like we need to realize that, hey, it might be a little bit more expensive to buy organic produce or pasture-raised chicken. That's something we've got to do if we want to support those practices, because they clearly do a lot of good, obviously. And so if we want to support regenerative practices, find those products at a grocery store, or better yet, find farmers like you that are actually doing those that we can, you know, have a relationship with, go out and support them. And I mean, the tricky thing is finding you guys, which I feel mm -hmm. like social media and even marketing, email marketing, which we were talking about earlier, has really helped kind of bridge that gap. And I'm really hoping that as more farmers are getting to social media, get, creating their own websites, getting out there. And I really feel like COVID sucked, but once everybody started to want to get out there after the lockdown stopped, I found that agritourism was skyrocketing because people wanted to get out there. They wanted to go outside, get some good food. And so I feel like it's been a really good thing that kind of happened. And so, I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot to unpack, but a lot of really good points. I mean, just kind of be more conscious about what you're buying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say, I agree with you that there are definitely more farmers out there trying to do this sort of uh, direct outreach. But here's the thing that the ones who are doing that are the self-selecting few wackadoos <laughs> that the vast majority of farmers, we, they just want to produce, yeah. you know, that's their joy. That's their passion. That's it's the family just, tradition or something. Yeah. It's a family tradition. And honestly, this, this whole marketing thing, it's a whole nother job, you know? So it's a joke, but not really. We've got two guys helping me helping us raise chickens. And they basically fired me from the field. They're like, I don't need your help. Your job is to go sell chicken. And I mean, I still go outside all the time, but <laughs> this is a, this is my full-time job right now is mm -hmm. trying to market our chicken that there are not many other operations who either have the talent, the time or the inclination to do it. So there, there is a reason the way the system exists now, because those producers can sell to wholesalers. The wholesalers sell to retailers and you get to buy. Yeah. That works really well. Each segment of the industry specializes on the things that they're, and it's not just what they specialize in, but it's the people themselves where they find joy, right? The producers find joy in producing. Marketers find joy in selling. I think, I guess, I don't know why else someone would want to do it, <laughs> but, um, so really, we don't necessarily need to change the system. I do agree that we need more people like me doing direct marketing. But what we really need to do, and I don't know what the answer is, to change the economic incentives to make the system we have now work mm. better. That's the real trick. And I don't really know how to do that. Well, I mean, I do. The consumer needs to vote with their dollar. Once that dollar sign is out there, it's going to happen. And I hope I haven't sounded too doom and gloom because these changes are happening. So there's a couple of examples in my head. 
a few years back there and still around it's epic bars epic oh, bars yeah. are these little meat snacks mm-hmm. it was founded by a guy named taylor collins i believe and he hit a vein he grew this little meat snack like crazy and general nils came knocking on the door and they bought him and they bought up epic epic is now a general mills brand and that that could give you a little bit of cringe like oh no my pure meat bar they have amazing packaging they look so awesome mm-hmm. they're my delicious pure also. Meat bar, yeah my pure meat bar is now owned by one of the largest food conglomerates ever yeah that's true but think of it the other way general mills sees where consumers are going they went out and spent millions of dollars to buy this to bring it into their system, to absorb its talent, its DNA, because they know that's the way of the future. And they want to be there first before all of the people want to be there. They're seeing the trendsetters and they're like, hey, let's get ahead of this trend. Um, yeah, there's others. Others, other. So the, the it's kind of below the surface, but things are changing. Regenerative practices are, are changing. Organic meats, the organic sales are growing. Things are changing. It's not quite fast enough, but your the more you vote with your dollars, the more things change. Yeah. I mean, hey, slow and steady wins the race, right? Right. Right. I mean, you're trying to change. The, I don't even know how many billions and trillions of dollars industry. Like the, this is like the Titanic on steroids times 10, right? There's no, There's no quick maneuvering here. Yeah, it's going to take a while. And that's a really good perspective, too, about General Mills buying Epic. I mean, I feel like that most definitely gave Epic more capital to get a bigger audience, to get more fans, and also an opportunity to kind of direct and change General Mills from the inside out also. I mean, you, they, can, they can continue what they're doing, and then General Mills can see, hey, this is clearly working for Epic. They're really on to something Let's maybe take some of their practices, some of the things that they stand for, and maybe apply it to all the other companies that we have under our umbrella. Maybe just try it for one or two or whatever, just kind of see how that goes. So that's a good way, you know, you can inspire change instead of just being like, oh no, General Mills is going to ruin Epic. Like, let's hope for the best. Let's assume that Epic is going to stay by their standards, which so far I think they have. And it's just kind of changed the industry for the better from the inside out. Right, right. I mean, there's... They, Epic, well, General Mills through Epic has the ability to make markets that, mm-hmm. you know, Bison was, uh, you know, they, they, they bought it. I don't, am not really sure, but just for example, like they could buy out the entire nation's supply of Buffalo meat. Mm-hmm. Well, then all of a sudden Buffalo producers are going to be like, Hey, I'm going to grow some more. I got a market for this now. Or someone's going to be like, Oh, I'm going to get into Buffalo. And you know, that's, that's for the better, right? There is a change right there. You know, I, I don't have any numbers at, at hand, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Buffalo numbers in the U.S. has gone up significantly over the last few years, not just because of Epic, but because in general, there's more interest in that sort of meat. You know, people assume that bison are healthier for them and probably is, but that's a whole nother horse that I don't know enough to go into that. I wouldn't want to be pointing fingers where I don't know true data. Yeah. I actually interviewed somebody, I think about a year and a half ago, he has a direct to consumer business called honest bison and they oh, yeah. sell bison direct to consumer. I think they also have like organ meat also, which is really good, like heart, liver, mm-hmm. everything, which is really neat because they've also found not only the bison market, but also the organ market. 
and you know people that want you know great quality heart meat that's like high in iron same with the liver and everything they can buy it they had i i think it's in my freezer we haven't tried it yet no 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 we did we did it's ground bison with ground heart in it bison heart also and it's like very nutritious it was really sweet and i was very surprised by it but we had it as a burger actually really good haven't had organ meat yet. i'm trying to get more into it but it's actually really good i I gotta agree i mean the the carnivore diet these days is like sweeping sweeping the social media and i'm like wait a second isn't this just paleo but maybe i'm missing (laughs) the subtleties but i um the emphasis on organ meat i think is uh 100% correct and i i got to admit we don't eat enough organ any organ meat we should eat more i totally believe in it but i'm very happy to see that people are really you know it's trend setting right that the people who are probably listening to this podcast or are buying from me like these are the trend setters and that if the trend becomes consuming organ meats, uh, you know, keeping more of that animal out of the renderer, mm-hmm. like for instance, so we sell whole birds and let's just pick a number. We'll call it a four pound whole bird. Okay. So that's going to include bones. That's just the whole bird, Sunday roast, yummy, deliciousness. Uh, not many people actually want whole birds. They want them in parts and they particularly like them in boneless parts. Well, if I go and part out a bird and go boneless, all of a sudden I now have three pounds to sell instead of four pounds. Mm -hmm. Right. And I still have the same production cost because I had to grow the meat and the bones. So if I just throw those bones away, it's a loss. They're going to go get turned into dog food or something. Well, if the broth industry is really cool these days, I haven't fully figured this out, but if I can turn those bones that currently I'm having to throw away into broth, boom, I just kind of saved the price. Mm -hmm. If I can sell the gizzard, if I can sell the heart, if I can sell the liver, if I can sell the feet, if I can sell closer, the more I can sell, all the prices come down, right? Because the production costs are the same. I have to grow the heart. I have to grow the liver. I have to grow the feet. I put money into growing those things, but I don't get to sell them mm-hmm. currently. But if I can sell them, right, is this at all clear that the more I sell, the overall the price comes down? So that's why when you buy a whole bird, it's cheaper than when you buy parts because you're buying more pounds. <laughs> yeah. So, so organs are, uh, organs are a fantastic thing. They make it easier for me to sell you a bird at a price that, uh, is, you know, reasonable and it is going to make you healthier because you're eating the nutrients that you should be eating. And yeah. So I think the Oregon meat trend out of this carnivore diet is fantastic. Um, just on pretty much every level. Yeah, it's funny how, I mean, I haven't gotten like 100% on board with it. I definitely need to like, you know, more opportunities to try stuff like that and just incorporate it. But I feel like, I don't know, it's kind of making our diet like kind of circle back to how it was a couple thousand years ago, you know, where we're eating every part of the animal. And I mean, obviously you look back how healthy we were then out hunting for the livestock, doing everything, eating all the organ meat and how much healthier it was in our current diet, which is interesting. Hopefully it'll be kind of the norm and maybe we can have fast food that incorporates that. I don't know. Maybe that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. A, 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 a Mr. What is it? Beast Burger? Mr. Beast Burger with oh, a yeah. heart, heart patty, heart. I don't know. I'm making that up. I'm just wondering. That would be pretty <laughs> awesome if you could get Mr. Beast to uh, do a hamburger with heart mixed into it. I was about to say, I was like, he has that. That would be really cool. I feel like somebody with that big of a brand would have a really good impact on that. Like, hey, 
I'm Mr. Beast. I have 118 million subscribers on YouTube just on one channel alone. Try some heart meat on this burger. It's super delicious. And then heart meat would skyrocket. And then I guarantee you right. McDonald's, Burger King, whatever. They would have like these small little, I don't know, like products that they would try like the McRib or something where they go in like every couple of months. That'd be kind of cool. That would really change it. I need to email him. Right. Maybe maybe he'll have me on or have you on. That'd be kind of cool. Right. If anyone wants to talk to me about any of that fun stuff, just let me know. <laughs> so in addition to your chicken, you also have a bunch of tours on your farm. Is that right? On the ranch? Right. So we do. So we in the sense, so our neck of California, we're in a Mediterranean climate. That means cool, wet winters and hot, dry mm -hmm. summers. So we get okay. all of our rainfall in the winter. And then we, you know, meter out water over the summer. And California, I don't know how nationally the news is gone, but California's in a pretty massive drought. Mm -hmm. Last year was not good. We got nine out of our average 13 inches. Um, and we weren't much better the year before that. And this winter, the long range forecasts are average at best. So, uh, water is scarce. So we, our particular ranch, we lucked out grandpa <laughs> sounds a little silly like to say it like this, but grandpa built a reservoir. Grandpa built a dam. So he, he actually graduated Caltech as a, an engineer degree and okay. in his civil general engineering course. So the story goes, there was a week long course on how to build the perfect earthen dam. And when he bought the ranch, he was like, ah, I see the perfect earthen dam on the ranch. And so we built it. So we have a 25 ish surface acre lake on the ranch when it rains mm -hmm. and we have lakeside, a little lakeside cabin and we invite people to come up and fish and swim and snorkel and I mean, not snorkel, but fish and swim for sure. And hike around the ranch and uh, give them a ranch tour and say, howdy do. And <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. So leaning back or circling back into the, the personal connection that we've been doing, having fishermen come to the lake for, well, probably since the late nineties. Okay. And it's not, it's not really been a big thing we've pushed it for a while. We, my dad was behind it pretty good, but we got busy. But there is something about this ranch, especially for our family and for a certain number of other people where you probably have had this experience where there is a particular landscape where it's a little silly to say it like this, but your soul gets rooted, right? Yeah. Like, I bet you can think right now there is a piece of ground somewhere that I have been in my life that I feel at home, right? And that you're like, this is maybe it's where you live. Maybe it's not. But there is a place where you say. Where is your place? And I know you will know where that is. Everyone I think has that for us, for me, it's right here. I lucked out. Um, but we have found a number of fishermen who have felt that same sort of connection to this place and that we now have someone who came here fishing as a kid. He started coming when he was a five. He is now bringing his own five-year-old here to go fishing exactly where he went fishing when he was five years old. Oh, cool. So... It's just really cool to offer our ranch as a place to potentially to find their spot to develop this sort of relationship with the ground, which is also to some degree what I want to encourage when people buy from us to let them both viscerally and at remove feel this connection that yes, you're buying our chicken, 
but we, you know, hopefully most of our sales will come local within driving distance. Come visit, come spend the weekend at the lake, come see where your chickens grown, you know? Um, and really, I think that, that, that just gets me excited that to have, have those pe- In fact, I just got a chicken order earlier today from someone who I sold chicken to 10 years ago. And no she was like, I thought you went out of business. And I was like, no, <laughs> we didn't go anywhere. Just things change. She's like, this is amazing. I still remember I had this dinner of blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, and you're the most amazing person. I'm like, well, that's not true. But I'm very glad that the chicken I grew for you gave you such a strong memory that you still remember that meal 10 years later. That's that's pretty cool. That that's That is cool. a fun feeling. Yeah, th- I feel like that's what it's all about. Like creating such a good product that, I don't know, you're ingrained in the minds of the consumers and they just come back for you time and time again. I mean, not only how good the food was, but also whatever sort of event they bought it for. Like usually, I don't know, birthday party or Thanksgiving or something, they buy it for a good event and they know it's a good product from a great farmer and it just kind of come becomes ingrained in them when they're like, you know what? I want to do this again. I want to support them again. That's awesome. Right, right. So it's all, I mean, there are other people who use this tagline a lot more. I don't lean into it, but to some degree, all we are doing is creating memories, mm. right? Yeah. Some memory. We want to be evoking some reaction, some emotion, some something. And that is, um, and, you know, we're humans. Like our entire, if you think of our body as like a self-serving mechanism, like food is very, very important. Oh, yeah. Food memories go very, very deep in our brain because our body's like, hey, we need to stay alive. That food was really good. We should eat more of that. (laughs) So as food producers, we have a uh, kind of a direct line into a person's memories because Mm -hmm. you remember food way more than you remember your latest Netflix show. Right. Yeah. So if, yeah, and I'm not doing a great job at it yet, but the idea is to access that sort of sensory memory, primal memory base and engage people with like, oh, that was such good chicken. (laughs) And it is silly. Tastes like chicken should be a compliment, not a curse, right? Chicken is not really a bland meat. You grow a good chicken, you're like, holy moly, that tastes like chicken. Yummy. Yeah, we're so So. used to like this. I mean, fast food chicken, whether it's like a, I don't know, Chick-fil-A sandwich or chicken strips. And, you know, you're focused more on the sauce than the actual chicken. But then we actually have a high quality chicken that's raised very well like you guys do. And you're like, holy cow, this is what chicken is supposed to taste like. Like, this is amazing. Right. Right. So it happens all the time. It has happened for us. It happens for plenty of other people I see where someone will come up and say, this tastes like the chicken my grandma used to make. Mm. And it's not because grandma had a special recipe, although she certainly did, but it's because the chicken that grandma had to cook, right? Grandma, let's say, was probably born around the turn of the century, last century, 1900, 1910, 20, 30, something like that. She probably had a chicken chicken in the backyard. She'd probably go out and, well, she'd probably make grandpa do it, but, you know, go (laughs) whack it and pluck it and, uh, well, it depends on how your grandma is. My grandma would have had grandpa do it. Other grandmas might have done it themselves. But you see what I'm saying? Oh, that yeah. it was the quality of the meat along with the love of the grandmother with her special family rec- recipe with the conviviality of the family sitting down. Because So chickens are a relatively recent protein mm. that they are not 
super easy to raise at scale like they are now that the only reason we can have a chicken industry is because of the farm bill with all these corn subsidies that because chickens need a lot of supplemental grain. They can't just grow on grass. We call them pasture raised and they get a lot of pasture, but that's more like the salad, their vitamins that they really are growing on grains of various kinds. And that only recently since World War II with the advent of uh, chemical uh, fertilizers and the farm bill has grain become so cheap that it became possible to graze chickens at this level. So there is a political campaign. I really should figure out which president it was. Anyways, his slogan was a chicken in every pot. And so we think, oh, of course, yeah, everyone has a chicken in every pot. But actually, back then, that was a slogan for wealth, Mm -hmm. that not everyone could afford to have a chicken in every pot because chicken was expensive, because grandma could only raise like 10 or 12 chickens in her backyard because grain was so expensive back then that you only got spent hens to eat, that chicken, chicken... (laughs) chicken is not cheap. Chicken is a really expensive meat. It should be the most expensive meat, maybe only second to pork that, um, because if you think about it, grass fed beef, you got cows, you got grass, you got water. Yeah. There's a little other stuff, but that's, that's the ingredients of grass fed beef. Yeah. When you think about chicken, even pasture raised chicken, you're talking about chickens, you're talking about grain, you're talking about grass, sun, and water. So when you add that grain component, There's a whole level of complexity behind that that adds expense to your product. So chickens on that level alone should be more expensive, at least to some degree. And so when you go into the grocery store and you see your beef for $10, $12 a pound and you see your chicken for $2, $3 a pound, that's completely inverted. That is such an artificial way of pricing things. Totally, totally not biologically appropriate. (laughs) Which makes sense, but I mean, that's wild. And you brought up something about World War II, which I always think is just fascinating. Apparently, before and during World War II, like a lot of the American diet was goat. Like apparently mutton was a huge thing. But, um, you know, over there when they were feeding uh, soldiers, they would get mutton in a can. But then when they came mm. back to the States after the war, they were tired of it. And so they basically just stopped eating mutton and it decreased. And I'm assuming chicken probably took its place as one of the most popular proteins here in the U.S. Yep. That's certainly part of it. Um, yeah. So in our county in California, we're in Tehama County, there are more of, let me get my stats right. There were more sheep in 1940 in Tehama County than there are in the entire state of California right now. Wow. So there used to be millions of sheep in California. We have a 80... Wow, old is he? 86-year-old neighbor? I don't know. Pete, the guy will just, he's amazing. But anyways, his whole career, he was a sheep shearer. He Hmm. spent, I don't know, 40 years shearing sheep, traveling the entire state of, well, north state of California, shearing sheep. And there's no sheep anymore. There's no shearers. They don't, they don't exist anymore. There's no sheep to shear. Mm -hmm. Like he is 86 and he still goes out and shears sheep every now and then. Not very many because he's the only one. Yeah. Right. 86 year old. There's no like 40 year old. There's no 20 year old. There's no one shearing sheep. He's a hot commodity. There's not, there's no demand for it. So no one's learned. It's crazy. So that's, uh, 
Mediterranean climates like we live in, if you look at the way the forage production happens, mm-hmm. spike in the spring, tails off to the winter, mm-hmm. spikes in the spring. And if you look at the physiological demands of a small rumen, a goat or a sheep, it spikes at birth, tails off through lactation and drops for a couple months before pregnancy and starts all over again. You match up those two production curves and it's the exact same thing. Mediterranean climate and small ruminants are a perfect hand in glove fit. Mm -hmm. And that's why California had millions of sheep back in the day because it was kind of pretty much the perfect match. Um, And so one of our missions, my mission is to, okay, so I call it, this is like my meat case story. Yeah, yeah. That if you're in Florida, go out to your meat case. In Florida, you'll probably see more seafood than I would see. But by and large, you're going to see the exact same meat case than I I see here in California, right? It's going to be a lot of beef, a lot of chicken, some pork, and hardly any lamb or goat, Mm -hmm. right? That's what I see here in California. The rea- but you open up the door, you're going to see palm trees and an ocean. I mean, I'm not in the powder of California that has an ocean. I'm going to open up my door. I'm going to see valley oaks and hills and shrubland and brush. Why the heck are those two meat cases looking the exact same? Mm-hmm. Instead of mimicking their environment, the region that they're in. Right. Yeah. And so certainly the in- economic incentives have homogenized our meat case, but <clears throat> that's not right. It's, it's silly. So what I am moving towards is creating a California appropriate meat box, meat Mm. case. I really Mm. need to come up with a better term for it. (laughs) In California, our, our growth, at least in our particular part of California, Mediterranean climate, we should be eating mostly lamb and goat, which is delicious. You just haven't tried it. You need to have my wife, Holly, cook it for you. You'll want it more. Mm. Um, And uh, you probably have heard, California's had five of the 10 largest wildfires have happened in the past five years or something like that. Yeah. We are burning like crazy people. Some really crazy statistic. In fact, one of those big wildfires burnt the back thousand acres of the ranch. It it didn't matter. It was was scrub brush land. It was Mm. no big deal. But it burnt us. Like we had helicopters flying over bulldozers cutting in fuel lines i mean it was nuts um so we need these small ruminants to be grazing this environment that cows don't browse cows don't like brush goats and sheep in round numbers do and that we should be grazing if we are truly trying to steward the land like I am trying to do, like we are trying to do, truly steward the land to put the right animal for the right reason in the right spot. That means we should be eating lots of lamb and goat because we have hills. If you're a thousand pound cow, if you're a thousand pounds, are you going to climb up a hill? No. Nope. If you're a little hundred pound little dinky thing, poof, you're running right up the top. <laughs> Goats and sheep like hills. Cows do not. We have lots of hills. We have lots of brush. Cows don't like brush. Goats and sheep like brush. Um, So, but we do have some bottom land and there are some, you know, long-term green spots on the ranch. So coming off of our ranch and kind of in this whole area of California, you should be eating a lot of lamb and goat, some grass-fed beef, and then kind of, if you're going to eat chicken, 
Um, you probably should be eating something that is, uh, a chicken that is uh, ecologically appropriate. California, we are too dry to dr- to grow soy. So any mm. chicken in California is eating soy that's either coming from the Midwest or China, which it doesn't make sense. California can grow alternate proteins. We can grow peas. You can get camelina from the Northwest. You can grow this. You can grow that. But soy is so cheap, and that's what they do. Um, California can grow corn. We graze a fair amount of corn for the dairies, which are leaving, but we can grow a lot of corn. But corn takes a reasonable amount of summer water. California is in a huge drought. That's not a great place to be putting our water, in my opinion. Mm-hmm smarter than all the tree crops that are growing in, but that's a whole different story. Um, so we are a no corn, no soy chicken. Um, lots of people have opinions about the health of that health for the animals, health for the humans. I'm undecided. I see good arguments on both sides, but for me, the real deciding choice we went this route is because it is not ecologically appropriate. We're trying to grow chicken that matches the California environment. For us, that makes sense to go no corn, no soy. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember why I got on the soapbox, but that's what I get excited about. That part of our job for these thousand families that we're trying to find, that we want to create a California meat box that is just the most perfect ecological representation of what you should be eating here in California. Yeah, I think and that's right perfect. now. Mm, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, right now we do a great job doing chicken. We do... We are the, yeah, we do an amazing job with the chicken and we've done goat and lamb in the past. We're going to get into that in the spring of 23. If things go well, we've got some beef still kicking around. So by next spring, summer, you're going to open up our beet box from Big Bluff Ranch if you're in California and it'd be like, wow, I got awesome chicken. I got lamb. I got goat. I got beef. This is amazing. This is a perfect box. This is everything I wanted. And it's very, like you were saying, ecologically focused on California. Right. And this is where it gets exciting. See, I told you I could talk a lot. This is where it gets exciting because that meat is going to be delicious and mm-hmm. yummy and so satisfying to eat. It's going to be so that you have that going for you. It is going to be better for your body because yep. it is, you know, grain fed, grass, you know, all the good stuff. It is going to be better for the landscape because we're going to be putting the right animals in the right spot for the right reasons. If the land is healthy, that means we're going to have less wildfires. We're going to have less floods. I mean, if we'll have less drought over time, we would have less drought for two reasons. One, it's effective rainfall. You want to talk about how much, okay, three inches of rainfall out of the ground, out of the sky. Hits a concrete, that three inches is just going out to the sea. Boom. You essentially had a zero inch rainfall, no effective rainfall. If it lands on a poorly managed pasture, I don't know, pick a number. This is a made up example, so I don't know the number. Say you're only going to absorb maybe one inch of that. Mm -hmm. So that means you have an effectively a one inch rainfall. Um, If you're on a properly managed ground, you can probably absorb at least two inches of that water. So just by land management alone, we have improved our effective rainfall by 50% in my made up example. Yeah. So- California's in a drought. We're probably not really going to affect how much rain hits the ground, but we can absolutely immediately affect how much of that water we retain. The more water's in the soil, more water's going to go down into our aquifers, more water's going to go into the riparian zones for the salmon and all that sort of stuff. And then on a much longer time frame, 
that actually will increase rainfall. It will moderate our climatic change. Uh, there's just all sorts of cool stuff. I, anyways, that, <laughs> yeah, no, and the, that's all because all because you decided to eat some really awesome tasting meat, right? That's your that's that's the thing. It's like I just want some really good meat, and you have all of these knock on effects. That because you decide to eat something yummy, you are saving the world. It's ridiculous to connect those two, but it is absolutely true. Yeah, it's amazing that domino effect because you're just being a little bit more conscious on what you're eating and what you're buying, and it affects so much. It affects the farmer, it affects the ecosystem, it affects your state, and it affects the climate. I mean, just by being conscious a little bit, you're having just a huge impact on what's going to go on. Right, right. Yeah, totally. And you're like, <laughs> uh, I, only, I, I only bought one hamburger. Well... One grass-fed beef, I think McDonald's had grass-fed beef hamburgers for a little bit. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. There was a fast food chain had grass-fed beef for a little tiny bit. Mm. And most of that came from Australia. But anyways, your one grass-fed beef burger at McDonald's shifted the whole environment, right? Yeah. I'll, I you bought one, one crappy, I don't know if it was McDonald's, one gra- fast food grass-fed beef. Just imagine if you have one pasture-raised chicken a week mm-hmm. or a month. I mean, collectively, this matters an immense amount. It feels meaningless to you, but it is significant. It really is significant. So do it. Splurge. And if you can splurge more or if you can step up to it regularly, the more you do, the better. As long as we are all directionally kind of going in this direction of regeneration, it's only going to get better. Yeah, totally. And I mean, perfect little segue if people in California, if they want to support you, if they want to buy your chicken, what's the easiest, what's the best way to, for them to do that? Right. Uh, bigbluffranch.com. Just go to our website. You're going to see a picture of our chickens. You're going to see a picture of me. There's going to be a big honk and shop now button under the little middle of it. Mm-hmm. Go shop now. And then you will be able to pick whatever sort of chicken box you want. And then by next spring, there will be other yummy stuff in that box. Well, perfect. I mean, and of course, they can also go there. They can go see at the lake. They can tour you guys, see what's going on there, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're in California, uh, come visit us. Uh, I don't know if you got a sense from this podcast, like... I don't mind talking about this. Uh, I can get kind of excited. <laughs> and then if you really want the best tour, my daughter Evelyn will come out and she will catch a baby chicken for you. Oh, so. fun. I feel like you guys would oh, yeah. have the best tour on the farm. I feel like that would be super fun. I'm going to have to take you up on that one day. That'll be super cool. I know. I've noticed you're kind of a little bit of a uh, world traveler. Next time you're uh, out in this neck of the woods, feel free to stop by for sure. Yeah, my wife and I, we went out there. We went out to Napa for her 30th birthday, and it was beautiful. I have never been in that part Mm. of California before, but it was super pretty. I mean, like you were talking about, I didn't realize it, but it was very rural. A lot of farms, a lot of ranches out there. A lot of, obviously, a lot of grape farms, um, a lot of wineries, but that was super pretty. I was like, okay, I like this part. This is awesome. This California is pretty cool. Sure. If you're going to go hang out in California, you might as well hang out in Napa where all the money is. Yeah. No, that Napa, Napa, Sonoma. We're, uh, my wife is relatively into wine. I like it, but she's, so we do wine tastings every now and then. And yeah, Mm. it's going down there is just a blast. Yeah. It's a good place. Well, Tyler, man, I feel like I could pick your brain for like, I don't know, four or five more hours, but this was a great interview, man. I think what you guys are doing are, are, are great with some pasture raised chicken. Um, yeah, best of luck for you guys. I can't wait to see what you guys are going to do in the spring. I'm going to have to follow up with you and see what's going on. Yeah, 
I mean, you can you can edit this out, but I'm all up for a part two, man. Who knows what's going to happen by next summer? Yeah, that'd be super fun. Definitely have to do a part two. I, I've been slowly doing more and more part twos with repeat guests, so we'll definitely have to do that in the spring and see what's going on. Okay, I, I'm going to put it on my calendar. Deal. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Tyler. Yeah, not a problem. I had a, I mean, I really, this is like I was saying at the beginning, like this is why I think I just like this. This is great. I love talking about this sort of stuff. And I feel like I am getting better and more coherent about what I'm trying to say. I'm saying like and less and so and um, less. Yeah. I'm sure I said it plenty, but, <laughs> you know, getting those little verbal ticks out and then just really be able to lay out my personality and, um, and our position and our point and our passion and just be like, like I said, we only have room for a thousand people. Uh, only a thousand people who are cool need apply type. Deal. Yeah. Yeah. Not really. It's more like a thousand people who like this, right? Mm -hmm. If you can get along with this, let's go for it. I mean, Hey, all about finding that niche, but that, no, that's perfect. I think that's a really great way to do about it. But I mean, yeah, if you want to start a podcast, do it. I would be, I would love to help you out. It's super easy, super fun. I think you'd be a great podcaster. I mean, I'm always saying we need more podcasts and ag. So I think that would be super cool. It, I agree. So that, I mean, that's the thing is that there's, I mean, you're definitely more consumer facing than most, but almost all of them, which is fine is farmer to farmer. I don't think anyone's really found that vein to go farmer to consumer. Yeah. And I think that, I think that it's there. I mean, you know, the people who go to the farm, like I said, they go to the talk to the farmer, the produce is better, but they go to talk to the farmer, mm -hmm. right? I think that if you can come up with a, not a, a gimmick in the best sense of the word, where people really get that sense of like why, what the farmer's passion is, mm -hmm. I think that could be super cool. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, people love supporting people sharing what they're passionate about, like whether it's an artist or a farmer, musician, whatever. Like people just love supporting people do something they're passionate about. I mean, especially whenever you think about your friends or something like that, like you just love supporting what they're doing. So I think that's very right. true. Right. I was thinking, you know, the, so if I, one thought was like, you do the organic farming, like, mm -hmm. and you could, if you're asking an organic farmer, like, tell me about the moment, paint the picture where you were standing when you had that realization either when you decide to go organic or when you decide that organic was a good decision because mm. there will be a moment or a reason. Oh yeah. And you will probably, because we're farmers, we're, you know, we're, we're geo geospatially located, right? We mm -hmm. don't just kind of sit in an office. We're like, we're in a spot. Like, I don't know any of the street names in town. Cause I'm like, you turn at the tree, you turn at Jared's <laughs> old house, right? It's a like landmark kind names. of guy. Who yeah. Would, yeah. Who would need a name? So then they would, the whole idea would be to ask the farmer, where were you? What were you looking at? What was the spot? And then tell me what your realization was. And then I just, I suspect that if you tie the spot to the story, that's going to kind of unlock stories with them, within them. They'll be like, oh, well, I was driving out with my dog, Sam. Sam was a great dog. And, you know, he liked to go jump in the rice paddies. And there was this one day when I realized I hadn't sprayed and I just... I didn't, I'm totally making this up. And I didn't worry about him going out in the fields. There was no roundup out there, right? Sure, go for it. I don't care if he's eating that fish. Like, it's, he's safe. I love Sam, you know, something like that. I don't yeah. know. I think, I'm sure those stories are know. out there. I mean, definitely. Yeah. So that's, funny. anyways, you're right. I could keep talking. <laughs> we, I think we went over your 45 minutes, but no. you've got a sharp, uh, no, sharp editing perfect. tool, I'm sure. 
A lot of good nuggets in today's episode with Tyler. Again, go check him out at BigBluffRanch.com. And all of that stuff will be linked below in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Again, can't wait to finish out 2022 next week as we get ready to wind down the year. And then we'll have some new fresh episodes in 2023. So thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Adios.